Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of our epic X-Men reread presented by Crushing Comics. I am here with Tyler who has read this material before many times over as I have as well but also with Faria who this is her first time reading this classic Claremont material that we began from Giant Size X-Men and Uncanny X-Men 94 and we're almost to the end of our first season quote unquote this is our penultimate episode. We are here reading Uncanny X-Men 135 and 136. We're dead in the heart of the Phoenix Saga right now. And we're also going to read the backups from Classic X-Men 37 and 38, which are both Dazzler stories, and they're somewhat contemporaneous to this story. Uh, just to give us a little warm-up before we dive in, uh, this story, you know, we ended Uncanny X-Men 34 on a very surprising moment with Dark Phoenix, right? She just busts out. She's in this red and gold costume. We knew that something was going on, but it was very shocking to encounter. So I wanted to ask you, what is um, another story or book without spoiling the surprise that handed you a really big surprise that is that is something that you go like, oh, that was a great twist. Don't mm. spoil the twist. Mm. Just mm. recommend the thing. Tyler, do you have one? Yeah. Um, Babylon 5. Babylon so, 5 has several really good twists. Yeah, but I think the one that I was thinking of is like the one in the middle of, um, well, there were, there were, there are many, but I think there was the, the one where it was about, it was, it was a change from, uh, it's one of the, it's, it's a change, um, in dynamics between two of the main characters. Mm. Like that particular event switched the dynamics completely. So that was, I was like, whoa, I did not see that coming. So, yeah. Freya, what about you? What is something that has delivered you a major surprise without spoiling the surprise itself? So maybe because I read so many stories, it's mm. very difficult to surprise me anymore. Yeah. Like, mm. you know, but the one that I remember, and that was because it was one of my earlier reads, is the Dark Knight Returns, the very end like, you know, there is, um, yeah, there's one character that shows up and you see that character, Batman goes and talk to that character. And then you're like, oh, okay, that's just weird. Uh, what is that about? And then <laughs> that character shows up at the end and there was like, oh, bam. Um, I thought that was very well executed. And then the whole idea of Bruce Wayne being like very methodical and then have a plan. Um, so that really got to me, but that was because I was also earlier read. Nowadays, nothing gets me. <laughs> nothing surprises me anymore. I'm like, mm, sure. Yeah. It's, it's sad though. It's sad though. Hmm. But I wish it happened. No, it happens. I mean, it's, 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 it's the same with me when I'm watching uh, t television shows now, especially the non, um, you know, I mean, the, you know, you know, the, the CBS, the MB, uh, you know, NBC, ABC shows. It's like, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I saw, I mean, I saw it coming like a mile away. Oh yeah, this is the twist. Oh yeah, this is it. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, after you've seen a lot, it, it becomes that, that way. Yeah. yeah. But what about Peter? What, what is your, um, well, twist? you know, it's interesting that you said the thing you just said, Tyler, because something I was reading recently is this an examination of this whole kind of mystery box culture that very much came into play after Lost from J.J. Abrams and all those mm -hmm. folks, where, um, and a lot of TV shows are like this, where they say, like, if the people started to guess it, we had to change it. They'll be like, mm -hmm. oh, we were on message boards and people started to hint at our plots, so we had to take a left turn. And that's created, I yeah. think, 
a lot of TV and, and movies and stories that are, are surprising, but they're not surprising in like a fun way. Mm. Because a surprise, the best kind of surprise is a surprise that seems totally shocking and then you realize you had the threads for it. I think that's the best kind of narrative surprise. Yeah. And so these shows that like insist on twisting so hard to avoid the thing that anybody theorized, I think they've ruined what surprise is. And the one I was mm. going to say was going to be Battlestar Galactica, one of my favorite shows of all time. I recently mm. rewatched a lot of it and, um, and a lot of it still hits me really hard from a surprise aspect. But then towards the end, they try to do a big surprise where, mm. where they kind of do one of those pivots out of it because people had started to guess one thing and the creator yeah. was very stubbornly like, no, it can't be something that people already figured out and it kind of like messes with the momentum of the show because they try to steer out of it so hard so then i was thinking like what's a genuinely good surprise where like it was rewarding in the same way this dark phoenix moment was rewarding in 134 and for me it's the good place um the good place Mm. especially the first big surprise but Mm -hmm. the good place has many surprises in it right it's it it's right there for you it was right within your grasp and it's utterly shocking don't Mm. let anybody spoil it for you and i kind of knew it Right, but that's the best kind. Yeah. I kind of knew it is the best kind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so to me, probably thinking of the past like a decade of my media consumption, I think Good Place was the best cool surprise that I've consumed. Oh, the, so the other one, I would say that like recently that, so when I read it, it didn't surprise me because I'm like, okay, sure. But having now went back and reread other one, House of X 2. <laughs> Mm. Well, and that's now, the thing. I mean, that, so this because, is, and that's just because of rereading other things. You're like, <gasps> well, this is a good juncture to mention our spoiler policy. So <laughs> we, especially because of one of the scenes in these issues, we will talk about things up through and including House of X and Powers of X, because part of what spurred us onto this reread is a is a critical evaluation of all of this past X-Men with those stories. Here's what's so interesting to me about that. At the time, I was so angry about House of X 2 because I was like, Mm. it's too big of a change. I don't like retcons of this size. You're just doing it because you're out of other ideas, whatever. Now that I'm reading all of this, I do see that the surprise was there all along. Hickman made it such that it felt like the surprise was there all mm. along. I wish I could go back to that Peter that that was in like, you know, a July of 2019 hating it. Go, look, you're always going to hate this kind of story. It's just how, who you are. But it's it's much more seated in the story than you did. And I think maybe that was my fault. You know, I refer to myself as this big X-Men fan, but there are tons of people who know X-Men better than me. And maybe some of them immediately had a click with all of those Morris scenes that had happened over the years. And, and it worked for them better, even at the time. I, I can admit when I'm wrong. I'm not saying Hickman's a good writer. Don't get me wrong, folks. I'm just saying I came off a little bit harsh about Hawksbox too. Um, no, I mean, if you just read X-Men Legacy by Mike Carey, it will change your life. Yes, I'm so happy you finally are That's on this thing. team with Tyler and I. <laughs> it will change your life about Moira, like about mm-hmm. ha- House of... Read House of X 2, then go and read Mike Carey's X-Men. Mm-hmm. It, you will... Your mind will be blown. Yeah. Oh, and I mean- then, read, then read Murders uh, 17. Whichever one they have the hospital, just read that. Like they, right. if you read them in like, order, then you'll be like, <gasps> yeah. All right, folks. No, Before we say we're dancing yeah. too close to yeah, spoilers right close. now. So very we're gonna close. move on with our conversation. <laughs> Let's start with something funny, because um Phoenix blew up the you know, the Blackbird, right? 
And the first thing that Kurt said was like, oh no, we destroyed yet another plane. I was like, <laughs> dude, that is not what you should be focusing on. This is not the important thing. Sometimes, you know, when you are in trouble, you just, you focus on the, you know, focus on the most, the one that you don't necessarily think about. I know. Uh, but yeah, so the thing is like, it's, um, is it weird that I don't remember, even though I read both of these issues this morning, I don't remember anything. <laughs> so you guys have to guide me and I'll be like oh yeah that happened well we open up this issue with Dark Phoenix's power just exploding from her something's happened to kind of trip her last psychic breaker mm. and the ultimate power of the phoenix is corrupting her ultimately and right off the bat I'm sorry we've got to start with something heavy here but right off the bat Claremont goes right to the well of his classic trope of associating power as sexual gratification but only for women find me a place where he's written this for a male character I'll wait <laughs> Aurora even describes Gina is having lust as this you know for power so it's kind of like you know you can see claremont connecting the dots to all of these kind of like sexual subplots he's given gene and it just that's a turnoff for me personally i'm i'm over this this trope uh but we also get to see that gene has complete molecular control of the world around her she turns a tree to gold okay she's solving the world financial crisis one tree at a time and she which is which was second, actually the second thing that that's uh, Nightcrawler's like, yeah, oh my god, <laughs> it will solve New York's financial crisis. It does kind of feel like Claremont has just given up on writing Nightcrawler for the past yeah. five issues. Like he has nothing to contribute. I know. Again, no wrong thing. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry, Peter. No, but the thing is, like, uh, no, I was just saying that you know, with the with the whole sexual thing mm. about like too much power and ladies and all of that, so. I don't know where I read this or someone said it. Is Phoenix supposed to be allegory for womanhood? What? Yes, per Claremont. I mean, yes. No. Womanhood, I I have, I've turned into, went from a girl to a woman. I never killed five billion people as I did it. It's not a thing that happens. No, you so didn't have an stop. insatiable hungry for, hunger for broccoli and asparagus that led you no, to destroy a planet. Have, no, I didn't have either, and neither. Like, it's not a thing. So I'm so glad that they. I'm glad that they kind of moved away from that. Like, Phoenix is now a no common common thing. Yeah. Don't worry about it. So now you finally get the the broccoli people or the asparagus people. People go back and forth. Even within the comic now, they do refer... I've seen it in the comics of them referring to this, that time that Gene killed the planet of the broccoli people, the asparagus people. Yeah. Now you are finally in on the joke. Yeah, now I get it. But, but she wasn't trying to. So here's... Okay, so here's uh. the first... I know Tyler hasn't even had a chance to talk yet. Here's the first big topic. We'll start with Tyler. The, I think the key to Claremont's concept of Phoenix is that she is generally amoral in a way because an amoral doesn't mean non-against morals. It just means oblivious mm-hmm. to morals. Yeah. She's not operating on a human scale. You know, at the beginning of the of issue 136, Londra compares her to, to Galactus. The only reason Phoenix is dark is because she needs fuel and Jean doesn't have control over that need for fuel. And Phoenix sees the fuel of a star with an inhabited planet 
surrounding it, orbiting it, as the same as the fuel of an uninhabited star, because to her, life on that level is something that she can just create or destroy at will. So it doesn't really matter if she kills 5 billion people or not, she can put them back if she feels like it. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting that, that Claremont, even though she's the Dark Phoenix, and even though there's the Dark Phoenix Saga, and even though she's being presented in a villainous fashion here, mm-hmm. she's not malicious. And no part of these two issues, because after this in 137, kind of the dark part of Phoenix is over in 137. This is it. This is Dark Phoenix. 135, 136. Find me one time that she's malicious. She's kind of angry at her teammates, but she's really just wants more power. She wants the Macron crystal. She wants to generate energy. Tyler, what do you think about that? Is is that true? Is that how you read it? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, she basically transcends um, good and evil here. So she's like, you know, I mean, she's a cosmic being. She's, she doesn't, um, she doesn't, I mean, to her, that, that concept of like, um, uh, of, of good and evil, of, 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 um, she, she doesn't even, she wasn't even aware that the, 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 the system in which she consumed the star, um, was inhabited because yeah, she it's, be- it's beneath she didn't her. Care. It's beneath her. Like, yeah, she, she's like, oh, I need power. So, you know, flew into the sun, get her power, and she's like, oh yeah, this is glorious. And she, she, she basically ignore the star core the first time. And then she also ignore the Shi'ar battle cruiser until the Shi'ar fired on her. Right. And then she's like, no, this, this is not going to happen. You know, so basically I think, um, I, I, I completely agree with you that, um, there's no, malice in in this um in 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 presenting her um this way it's just that you know she's she's just being phoenix is just being phoenix that's all what did you think about that freeha so the thing is like my i feel like i would understand it more and Mm. that if this is the same problem we had with secret empire like you know with the steve who was taking over Captain America. Mm-hmm. And then he was like being evil all over the place. Right. And you're like, okay, so is there somewhere else, somewhere else in there? Like, you know, if you don't hear from the character within, like, you know, is there Jean actually in there? And she's kind of worried that, Hey, these people are being, being killed. Like, Oh my God, let's not do this. I can't control it. If you don't hear that, that background or like you know where she is coming from and stuff like that it just felt feels like another okay uh, being that was like exactly what you guys said that she's above all of this and she's killing all of this and stuff so then you're like okay then how do you even hold that accountable how do you hold anyone accountable so now everyone end up looking like idiots like you know so i I, that's one of the reasons i'm kind of like not I don't like these kind of storytelling where it's like, you know, but like a whole bunch of people just kind of died because of a thing. And now you're like, oh, we have to do something with this character now. What are you going to... It's the same thing we talked about, you know, Wanda one time. It's like, okay, what are you going to tell her? Like, she was under duress. Like, you know, how are you going to punish her? So the well, same thing. Same I mean, thing kind of goes goes over here. It's like, okay... She was not in control. It was some some other being. What are you gonna do? 
well, not to jump too far ahead, because we're going to save this discussion for next episode with 137, mm-hmm. but that is absolutely the conversation that winds up happening in the Marvel editorial yeah. office. Claremont yeah. is under the impression that he can get away with just being mm-hmm. like, whatever, she was hungry. She ate, she ate a yeah. planet of people by mistake by right. making a son go supernova. And, and Shooter, right? Tyler, it's Jim yeah. Shooter as the Shooter editor is, is like, no, actually, you can't commit genocide and have no plot consequences. And yeah. that creates the struggle in 137, but we're going to save that. So yeah. there's, Freya, do you have right. something and else you want to add? No, no, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, if you just, don't do that kind of thing. You know how people were talking about that. Oh my God, like, you know, X-Men has e- villains in their council. I'm like, no, she is no longer in the council. Like the worst villain in X-Men is no longer in the council. But yeah, well, yeah that, that's, that's, what it, that's what it ends up doing. It's like, okay, so I, I don't know how to deal with it. Like, it's too much complexity that you're introducing in a simple superhero story. That I, re- I refer not- to this a lot as just scale problem. Like a lot of times in yeah. my notes, because I take notes in everything I read, I will just have a note that says scale problem, scale problem. Because to me, it's like whenever any author tries to escalate their story by introducing something that that just doesn't make sense. You know, it's like they have an immortal character and they're like, and they have that character be like, yes, I was, I was the one who made George Washington run for president. And it's like, if you're not going to spend the time to explore that in your plot, and you're just trying to use that as a throwaway detail to make your vampire seem old, that mm-hmm. that's going to create problems of scale for your whole story. Because now we have to always be thinking about that every time we see your character of like, oh, this character really cares about democracy or whatever. And and it's not going to track. And I think that, that as much as this page of the star going supernova and the planet getting destroyed is iconic and as much as it absolutely has an effect on what happens at the end of this phoenix story i do think it's a little bit of a scale problem because anytime anybody tries to bring some phoenix stuff in the future we have to approach that from the perspective of mm. this is the phoenix force who just killed a planet of five to seven million people without a blink and like billion you, bill, billion. billion billion and you and like you can't do a phoenix story and in some ways you can't do a gene story without that knowledge because gene has subsequently absorbed the memories of the phoenix and so gene does remember theoretically the point in time when she committed genocide against seven billion people she has that memory yeah now i understand why teen gene was so upset like (laughs) girl was so upset about so many things and Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, okay, even if you're going to kill all the 7 billion people, don't say that they're sentient and peace-loving. Just give us something. Yeah, just make them hedgehogs or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. don't, don't tell us about how beautiful their culture is. Well, yeah, they're, like, they're peace-loving people. I'm like, oh, well, no. In, oh, come in, on. In, in the next issue, during the Shi'ar um, meeting, they they actually hinted that the... The system itself have more than one inhabited planets because oh, it's a inhabited worse. planets yeah. with the S. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, that was this is the first time I noticed that actually. So I was like, oh yeah. wow, okay, so yeah. it's not just my villain. I, yeah. I made a similar mistake in, our, in my D&D campaign recently that I DM where I had them have a vision of a world that was ending and it was too sad and they weren't supposed to be able to stop it. They were supposed to just like learn this piece of information and they get obsessed with saving all the people. I'm like, let the people die. You're just here to learn this. The world was going to end anyway. They're like, no, we can't let a world end. That's not who we are. I'm like, gosh, darn it. I'm just like, as bad. I walked yeah. right into this. <laughs> we need to we need to introduce them to Hickman Namor. He would, he would tell him, like, hey, man, listen. Hey, man, it's okay. I'm just here to blow up this planet. Just, yeah. just like, <laughs> Give me the remote. 
Let's end this. <laughs> so there's a there's a few smaller plot points here that are mm-hmm. actually pretty interesting. Let me just tick through them and see see what you all think. So one is Shaw uses what appears to be a very public attack by the X-Men. Like nobody else in in the Hellfire Club has the context of all yeah. the evil stuff that's going on to basically just further manipulate Senator Kelly towards Sentinels. I mean, he doesn't say mm-hmm. it out loud on plant on yeah. the panel, but he wants to move them towards Sentinels, continuing this plot of this person who's part of the minority who's grown to be in power and he actually is trying to do everything he can to impede the progress, the life, the the freedom of everybody else who shares the same status as him. Well, there was also a little bit of a retcon later on that he was involved in Project Armageddon, right? So, so just to insert him back into the Sentinel program right. of like uh, Lang. So, so in a way, I think that's um, but it, it started here and I was kind of surprised too because I was like, well, wait, what, what makes you think you're safe from Sentinel? Right. Yeah, that's, that's, okay. that's a genie you don't want to let out of the bottle. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's, that's one of the reasons I was like super confused. I'm like, are you dumb? Like what? I don't get, I don't get, I didn't get that bit though. It's like, okay, because not a spoiler, but mm-hmm. you know, we later scenes Shaw is like, okay, I am the one who can you know, mess with mutants. You yeah. can't mess with mutants, you yeah. know. So he is now in that, like, you know, he has accepted that persona. But the thing is, like, it's like, okay, so now you're talking about Sentinel. It's like, how are you? You, Mofo, you're a mutant. I Son, think, you're a mutant. I think <laughs> the thing is that... Um, he just wanted chaos. That's what it is. He just wanted maybe, chaos. Maybe it's that. And maybe I think he, he still thinks that he can control them. So is this Senator Kelly is the same one as like uh, the one with the nightcrawler behind it? Do you want to be with them? Is that the same guy? No, that's the that's a pastor. That's not Senator. Oh, that's that guy. Yeah, oh, yeah. But Senator Kelly has a big role to play in uh, young okay. certain, oh, he's things. The, yeah, he's the one. Oh, he was an ex student movie. Okay, gotcha. Like, no, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but but the, but the thing is, like, yeah, but I don't know. When I saw that, I'm like, that that seemed dumb. Like, you know, it's one thing. It's like, oh, we need to take down the X-Men because yeah. X-Men is in the in the way for me to kind of take over the mutant and then uh, make them feel like they need me and then, you know, do something that way. But it's like, oh, we need to bring it on. Boy, you dumb. Go away. Yeah, I never, I've, yeah. I You know, I don't really understand what he thinks he's going to gain from that. Mm. Unless maybe, I don't know. Maybe Sentinel was supposed to go after humans at the end of the day. I don't know. Mm. Seems weird. Seems awkward. And the thing yeah. is, it's not that, oh, we didn't even know that he was a mutant. He already came out as a mutant. So it's like, what's your what's your story? Yeah, there? I have no idea what his, his, his plan was doing, going with right. that. Yeah. Well, here's the second of the three smaller details. So many big names in heroing notice the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. The Fantastic Four notice the Phoenix. Spider-Man notices the Phoenix. Doctor Strange notices the Phoenix. I would have loved if he would get involved. Uh, you know who doesn't notice the Phoenix? The good-for-nothing Avengers. Partially <laughs> because Beast is in their control room, and Beast, once an X-Men, always an X-Men, is like, I'm not gonna 
let the Avengers handle this. I'm going to go look into yeah. it myself. But really, like Th- Thor, Iron Man, you didn't have a little heads up display and your little Iron Man mask that let you know that the Phoenix had arrived. This just makes me laugh harder about like AVX and all the subsequent stuff. Because if AVX had been like FF versus FX, I would have been like, well, yeah, Reed really did care about the Phoenix the first time around. But I just mm-hmm. think it's so funny that the Avengers whole part- potential participation in this event is contingent on Beast like noticing it on the screen and calling them all. And otherwise they're completely oblivious. I just well, get a laugh out of that every time. But to be honest, that also makes sense why it's actually AVX. Because this time they were ready. Yeah. Next time, th- there was actually a line in there that's it. Because I recently read it and they were mm-hmm. exactly like, yeah, we we kind of, we, we, we messed up the last time. So <laughs> <laughs> we know it this time. <laughs> like, you know, there was actually a line kind of similar to that. But I, I also thought that it was because Beast was kind of um, stopping them from knowing. Well, yeah. He wanted to, like, but my argument is like, him. Tony Stark doesn't know, really. He was waiting no. for Beast to call him. Wait, wait, wait. But Beast basically ran off with the on the police call, not on Phoenix, right? That's right. He ran oh. off because he saw the police scanner call yeah. about the Hellfire Club. It's it's suggested in the next issue when Jimmy Carter calls yes. the Avengers Mansion yes. that maybe Beast would have also seen the note about the Phoenix yeah. had he still been in the control Has center. Has he been but there? That's not yeah. why he originally yeah. leaves. Yeah. But basically Beast yeah. is like, basically Beast is like, um, bye y'all. I'm, <laughs> I'm going back to my family. <laughs> it's but like, that's, that's uh, what yeah. I was yeah, that's what I was saying though. It's like because this last, they actually have one person doing monitoring and that person just out and left. So that's yeah. why they didn't know. But then mm. in the AVX, they're like, yeah, we, we kind of have extra stuff <laughs> so that everyone kind of aware of these things now. So but <laughs> they kind of got, um, like smart about it. But this kind but also, of Captain America, what he's got to do with Phoenix. But this He'll kind of like, scene, right? This kind of scene is more like um, is 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 Claremont's shorthand for X Men doing something really big, because mm. you want the moment you see a lot of like all the Marvel Universe characters reacting only on one page and only in one panel. Oh, it is a big thing. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, if you think about it, Second Coming has it. <laughs> <laughs> like you know a lot of the other oh yeah, yeah you're right so you have like everyone right. reacting and then it's like oh okay big thing like yeah man do you want to go and say like you yeah even even, even at the end of like um Astor- astonishing x-men it happens too right um oh, the, the very yeah. first round of astonishing x-men yeah yeah, yeah that's true that's yeah true. it's a classic trope of kind of like flash around all the yeah. shocked faces yeah so um, but the- by the way we forgot to talk about it in the last episode um Beast was reading this book, some random science book, and he's like, can't wait to see it in the movies. <laughs> I thought that was very... <laughs> was like, can't wait. But it was a science book. So speaking of scientists, the third minor revelation here is another cutaway scene to Maura McTaggart. Here comes our big spoilers for the modern day. And Maura says, she already dwarfs any mutant we've already charted. Thoughts about how this has new significance given our modern age? Yeah. I think it goes back to like, you know, that uh, they were thinking about using uh, Phoenix as a resurrection. Like, you know, and, but then I also, like they were in the background charting a bunch of mutants and stuff like that. And yeah, but the thing is, I was laughing at like Banshee bringing the tea and everything. Yeah, she's like, how do I make this guy useful? he's always bringing stuff to her yeah. like you know that's how you know he's still around like he's always bringing tea so that's and he's also well, I mean, green, Irish green 
Because he's Irish. We gotta he's know that. Irish. <laughs> Tyler, any thoughts in this Mora panel on how we can reinterpret it? I I just thought that, like, maybe, you know, Moira and Xavier both both basically lit up. It's like, oh, it's cosmic now. Hmm. Mm. You know, because, because, I mean, Moira has some, uh, presumingly has some cosmic plans, right? So, so, you know, this is like, okay, checkbox, cosmic. Uh, we, we have to, you know, this is, this is something that we need to take care of. Hmm. The thing that it really made me think of, and you don't even need Hoxpox for this, honestly, is like we just got through all the Proteus stuff, and we know from Claremont's own run that Mora kind of already has Legion in her pocket. And then we know via Hoxpox that like that was very deliberate, and she deliberately knew that Legion was one of these two reality warpers they created, hedging their bets for eventual resurrection process. And she in this moment is like, she already dwarfs any mutant we've already charted. Like it really struck me because again, per Hawks House of X2, we know she has an idea of what the Phoenix is because she's encountered mm-hmm. it in at least one life before. But it really makes me wonder if she's ever encountered Jean as the Phoenix, as the dark Phoenix. And, um, and kind of like the wonder and dread that's in her eyes at this moment. Like it's exactly the thing that they need to kickstart the mutant race. It's happening maybe way sooner than she ever anticipated. And even this thing that she did specifically in life 10 that they've never done before, which is make Proteus and Legion. Mm-hmm. She already dwarfs those mutants that they've already charted. It almost makes me wonder in what way Phoenix might er- eventually bring the Avengers to blows with the X-Men and, Again, in the Sigmund run, but we, we're not going to go there. Uh, so any other thoughts on Mora before we move on? Mm-mm. Okay. So that pretty much is it for this episode. I can under, or this issue anyway. We're not quite done the episode. I can understand why Freya kind of doesn't remember it because it's weirdly shaped. It's kind of like there's this initial five page fight with the X-Men. There's mm. the two pages of Shaw talking to Kelly and then Jean takes off into space. And, um, aside from a few intercuts, the whole rest of the issue is kind of just Gene zooming around in face in space while the X-Men are back at Earth. Which which brings us to the next issue, um, which starts with this iconic page. There's really no story to go with it at all. It's just Gene mm. and this giant pink phoenix raptor behind her cradling a sun, which is like had already happened in the prior issue with the Dabari planet. So this is pretty much just burned straight up doing a pinup and, and flexing. Um, there's no narrative reason for it to exist. And Jean's hair is like almost as big as her whole, like that's the hair I aspire to. It's as big as her entire body. Um, it reminded me of my cat with her, with the ball. Like, you know, that's the intensity. She attacks a ball. Like, you know, she will. And that's how I, it kind of made me laugh. But I actually looked up. I'm like, whoa, that's the sun. She's about to destroy yeah. it. She's it, it about able- to consume another sun. Maybe this yeah, is the no, second um, sun she consumes. <laughs> Yeah. Has there ever been Phoenix versus Galactus? We need that. Hey, and like a what if, but not. Yeah. No, no. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, like we need that. Like, who can eat the? <laughs> the yeah, not in a direct fight, but in a in a in a hot yeah. dog eating contest. Eating contest. Uh, <laughs> so the big the big plot of this issue is that Jean herself mm. briefly maybe wrests a little bit of control from Phoenix, or at least inserts a little bit of awareness in the Phoenix of how kind of off the deep end she's gone. And Jean comes back to Earth, specifically to her family home, to try to like reconnect with this idea of humanity as she's struggling to 
connect at all to whether she's human at all anymore now that she has access to these dark phoenix powers in a scene that i always find very creepy and unsettling she's talking to her parents her sister is at that home as well and she can't stop herself from reading their thoughts and it's not just like a psychic it's not just a psychic being like oh their thoughts are so distracting but almost this like these humans and their thoughts you know, and it really gives you a sense of of creepiness about how post-human she's quickly becoming um, before she ever gets in a fight with her friends. At least that's the way I've always read it. Freya, did you get the sense? What did you think about this visit to the Gray family home? Um, I mean, no, it is. I felt it felt like exactly what you said. Like it's like a last time, like t- trying to connect because every time she's trying to kind of connect, it's just blowing up in her face. So it's just coming back one more time and then trying to connect with uh, with the family and everything. And then that blew up again. Um, I think the whole, like, you know, everyone is scared of her and then that kind of got her. I think like part of me really was hoping that we saw at least a mini side series or something where we kind of saw it from her point of view, like, you know, more in background, in, like, you know, um, like, how is Jean feeling about all of this? Like, you know, and then like how she's trying to kind of keep the Phoenix under control and failing to do so. But then like, you know, Phoenix is telling her, oh no, walk away from this humans. Like, no, I can't, I can't walk away from, like, you know, something like that would have made it more, like, you know, land more. But I'm just having to use my, um, like, you know, tropes and all the things that I already know in terms of storytelling. Oh, okay, that must have, what happened but you know but also her sister is like worried that oh the kids are muted i'm like mm. and her mom is like are you eating enough and jeans yeah if only yeah. you knew yeah like you know, <laughs> i just ate five billion people oh no i didn't eat them but the i sun. ate the sun <laughs> like, you know. so yeah um like i think it's just like more like last attempt like last ditch attempt like it failed with her friends so or like like her found family but now it's like a, her real family like a last ditch attempt mm-hmm. that hey maybe they can help me and they couldn't yeah. tyler i mean do you think i mean do you think this is um this is her trying to connect or her trying to sever her last ties to Earth. You think she, cool. you think she might be there to kill them? No, but basically I think um is 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 the interplay between Jean and Dark Phoenix. So basically Dark Phoenix wanted her to come down come back to her family so that she can see how far beyond she has become. Mm. And then, you know, we severed this this last connection you have because she has already severed the connection with X-Men, her found family, like Faria mentioned earlier. So now her real family, she's like, let's kill this last connect, this last uh, connection with this earth, with this, um, you know, this backward, um, planet of yours. And let's go, let's go into space. Let's do what we were meant to do. And, you know, and then on the gene side, she's trying to find that connection to keep her here. And, 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 I mean, in, in a way, it's kind of like an interplay between these two, uh, the struggle between these two forces within this, this shell of, of, of G. Gray. So. I really like that theory. And I think that is probably the true. But the thing is, that because I'm so starved for Jean showing any level of agency in any part of her life, I would, mm-hmm. I am chosen going with that. She's the one who brought in order to find the last connection rather than mm. Phoenix doing that. Got you it. know? I mean, it's, either way it works. Yeah, right? it's kind of yeah. like, you know, just yeah. a fine Different, line yeah. depending and how it, you read it. Yeah, Exactly. So I think like it, it's, that's a, I think a good way of storytelling. Like, you know, it's like two people can come look at it from different point of view, even mm. the end result is the same. 
Yeah. Well, I think something that you passingly brought up, but I think it's one of my other big points about this before we move on to our tussle with the X-Men is the Dark Phoenix saga, much like many of these classic Marvel sagas, it's quick. Like yeah. people treat mm-hmm. it like it's this big space story. Like mm-hmm. they're in space for, she's in space for an issue and a half and then 137. People yeah. treat it like it's this big throwdown with the Phoenix, but she only turns into the Phoenix at the beginning of 135 and the throwdown mm-hmm. is really only in 135 and 136. People elevate these, these classic stories because they're classics in such a way that makes them inherently unsatisfying to modern readers because you're not going to get what we think of as a saga. Like this is not a, this is not a saga the way that we would think about a saga as a, as a comic reader in 2021. And I always kind of like push back on people when you see them talking to a new reader and say, well, you've got to read the Dark Phoenix saga. First of all, I mean, Free has been reading (laughs) X-Men with us now for, for two years and she's just getting to the Phoenix saga and it's interesting and it opens up some questions but you just don't like there is no reason you have to start here and past that it's not even a a saga really it's just a handful Mm. of related issues and it's the same thing about the kree scroll war and the avengers people go back to read it think it's going to be this big intergalactic throwdown it like happens within like a few scenes of an issue it's just a bunch of stories that are happening around this kree scroll conflict and so i always kind of laugh when people with these certain classic stories are like insisting to these modern readers who are like 20 years old 15 years old even 30 years old like you've got to go back and read the xyz saga like no you don't shut up (laughs) <laughs> so and I would I would say though because I was so I'm glad you said that because I was so unimpressed I'm like this is it <laughs> I was like where is my hundred tie-ins to read and understand no there's where- no hundred tie-ins <laughs> there's no tie-ins you guys there's not, not only it's tie-ins, so but it's just a small story it's like it's she blows up a sun the yeah. X-Men bring her back down to earth and then she has to pay for her crimes that's it that's the whole story mm. but it also kind of shows you do you need need a 10 issue event series like this is a very memorable story it has a Mm. ton of huge ideas 137 really is one of the classics of the form um do do, you know do you need a 12 issue mini event to do something this effective you should be able to do something this effective in 80 pages do you need 22 chapter x of salt no i don't you know so i think it cuts both ways i think in some ways these stories Well, that's that's a that's a fight to have in a different. Oh my god! (laughs) Compared to this, like this is so much better than X of Swords. This is a million times better than X of Swords. No, no, I'm I'm not talking. I'm talking about the scale of it. Like, you know, what you're trying to what you're trying to achieve out of it, right? What Mm. what's the end game out of it, right? right? Because from that point of view, okay, there was at least something. Because one thirty seven has a you know that oh we're gonna put you somewhere and you're gonna fight, but yeah. I feel like X of Swords did it a little better, but then again, it's also like, you know, trying to keep modern reader in excited versus back then when we talked about it before, like these were not tropes yet. Right. These were brand new stories back right. then. Right, the whole so, like fight your equals in the in the show. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves, yeah. but like the things that happened in 137 was not as uh, we've seen it all before. But again, right. again yeah. I just think it's really interesting how this cuts in both directions. On one hand, people build these sagas up so big for modern readers that they can't even stand up to it. But on the other hand, they're memorable for a reason. Like there are mm-hmm. individual issues in the Kree Skrull um, war, like the journey to the center of the vision, which I think are some of the best issues of comics from decades on either either side but that and and then you look at that issue and look at modern stuff and you like all this hyping you do of all these events but you can't deliver one issue as good as journey to the center of the vision 
for one issue as good as 137. So I, I think it's interesting. And th that's why there still is value, I think, in reading these comics and reading them critically. But you just can't put them on too high a pedestal. Right. Don't put anything on high pedestal. No, screw pedestals. Yeah. Okay, no, I, I just, kind of... Just keep them I on the ground. Of, keep all I mean, on at, least, at least at this point in time, I will always... I will definitely put Hawks number two up there. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, well, I won't. Uh, because, because that yeah. that changes everything. That changes everything. That's the only yeah. thing. But I know yeah. what you mean, Peter. <laughs> so so look, the other thing that really happens here, there's not mm. much. The X Men have been off on their own. They're at the mansion, kind of stewing, brooding over what they're going to do about Jean, who, let's be fair, she's somewhere off in the rest of the universe. They don't necessarily have access to her at this time. And, and Beast comes up with this, um, this diadem, this psychic circlet of, of machinery that he's going to use to short circuit their power. And they finally confront her outside of her parents' house because they know that she's back. Nightcrawler does the same trick he did with Magneto's helmet, only in reverse. He actually puts the circlet on Jean and in an especially creepy panel, Jean whips it off of her head while she, her body and her face is all in shadow. But before that can happen, we have Wolverine being the only X-Men who seems to really realize the gravity of the situation and that he's got to go in for the kill. Everybody else is kind of just playing around, thinking we're going to save her. Wolverine's like, this is the universe at stake. You go for it. So I want to turn it over to our resident Wolverine stabbing women in the gut reporter on the scene, Faria, here. But before I do, the one thing I'll just add to that is it works better for me here because we've just seen him be a killer with the Hellfire Club and like now we now this is that Wolverine. Like if this if he had done this five episode five issues ago, I don't think it would have read as well as it did after the stuff that just went down at the Hellfire Club. But now I turn it over to Freya. Uh what do you think about Wolverine's complete willingness to kill Jean here? So the thing is though, I mean I know that I always say that oh Wolverine does this. At least in this scenario, and then he's saying, and I we talked about it before that there was one one panel over here where it's like so on point on the character. I feel like this is mostly him projecting that he wished people had done that to him when he was out of control, mm -hmm. and that is him like kind of taking the initiative, even though okay, like there is a plan to control, like, you know, let's see how that goes. But he's kind of going, but I felt like this was, I, I don't know, like, Wolverine is, is like one of those things, like every time you want to hate him, he tells you something, then you're like, oh, damn, now I can't. And then that, <laughs> that that's his, like, that was this moment. Like It was like a wish fulfillment. It's like, I wish someone had, someone did that to me, even though it's nearly impossible to do that to him. Um, so he was like, I'll, I know that no one else will, but I will take the initiative to do this. You know, even though he claims to love this woman. Tyler, what did you think about Wolverine's willingness to go in for the kill here? I mean, that's the thing for um, that I remembered about Wolverine in this arc is that, yeah, he's like, he's he's willing to do whatever um, that the other, to do things that the, X, the other X-Men are not willing to do. So um, even though ultimately he did not go through with it, but um, at the very, I mean, at, at least he's like, yeah, I, I need to really get this under control because no one else could do it. And um, that's, I think that that is one of the defining um, characteristics of Wolverine um, throughout his run on, on X-Men, on, on Claremont's X-Men, is that he's willing to go far. 
whereas some of the characters would stop short, you mm. know, of, of certain things. He's like, nope, I know where I stand. I know where the X-Men are, uh, stands and I know where I can go that the X-Men cannot. So that's, I think there's a big difference. Um, and, and it starts here. So, but ultimately, so I, I oh, go the, ahead, Freya. No, I wish that there was actually at least a scene of this discussion and then this blowing up, you know, this complex like discussion between them because we have seen this again and again before that he's going head to head with the rest of them mm. in whatever capacity that is like oh mm-hmm. no this is not how you do it and all yes. that i wish this is where it would have been better if there was actually something like that because you know everyone was talking about like, oh how we can save Jin is like and then he just either walk away with like do you think you can save her or something like that that would have added more to it mm-hmm. uh, that's just more me being like you know if i were the editor that's what I would well, said. But but that would that would change the flow of the story because this was yeah, supposed yeah. to be a surprise attack on Jean, right? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, but I think even if if Logan walked away from that conversation of like just saying like sometimes you can't save everyone, I don't know if that would uh, I don't know if that would tip us all that he was going to try to kill her, but that would mm-hmm. kind of give us that moment. Whereas really we just get that frustration of them in the danger room, which always when I get to it, I'm kind of like really. Like that, I mean, I guess, you know, it's kind of like if you're waiting for something nervous, if you're waiting for one of your family members to get out of surgery or something, like you have nervous energy and you kind of just do something. But the danger room scene always just comes off as like so weird to me. But it's kind of like, you know, these are the three X-Men who aren't really in charge of things. As yeah. we've seen in the past, it, you know, it's Cyclops and, and Storm and Beast who are actually plotting with each other at this point. Right. But but ultimately, it winds up with another psychic dance battle, uh, Professor Xavier versus the Phoenix. And in a way, it somewhat mirrors a little bit of his confrontation that we saw with the Mal Farouk back in the flashback. And um, we get the sense both in the story and in the art that the Phoenix's power, the scope of the Phoenix, dwarfs him. Like it, it's seen towering over him bigger and bigger until he's just a speck. And it says the struggle is epic, waged simultaneously on all the infinite planes of existence. And so finally, that Xavier, not so much that he, he wins, uh, but he helps reconstitute one of the psychic circuit breakers and maybe Gene too from within is helping. And that's the end. And everything seems fine. I mean, Jean is naked, so she, she seems okay. Scott proposes mentally, and she says, "I do." Everything yeah. seems like we have a happy ending. We just needed psych. You just needed uh, Professor Xavier to come in and fix everything, right, Freya? Yes, that's that's pretty much it. And then everything happened in an exposition. We didn't even get to see it because we already saw, like you know, his psychic dance up with Farouk. So we can't replicate that over here because you know that's and that I was like, oh, that's when I was. I wanted like what you said, like you know, Gene helping probably from the other end. It was like, no, this is not gonna happen. I'm gonna like it, that would have been so epic. That would have been a saga. But no, we didn't get that. We just got that some exposition and like everything's okay. We got um, proposal. It all ended with a proposal. Mm. And her father was like, oh, here, there's a clothes. It's like, oh, my dad is blushing. I'm like, oh, what is all that? I know. Ew. Claremont has some issues, <laughs> I think, is what we're discovering here in this Dark Phoenix saga. And by uh, the way, I had to remind myself that he's not the old man he was then when he was writing it. That made it a yeah, little better. Yeah, he was relatively better. young at this point. Yeah. yeah like, he yeah, was. that made it a little better because I was like, oh, some creepy old man writing about this. <laughs> But then you're like, oh, 
okay, he was a young man at that time, writing about he young was, women. He was really young. So yeah. I think that's a little palatable. <laughs> Jean is as old as Claremont. <laughs> what do you think, Tyler, about Professor Xavier fixing it all here? I mean, I don't know why I don't remember how he fixed it in this saga, even because though I read it so many times. Because it's not memorable. Uh, yeah. Because nothing I, happens. Yeah. Yeah, because nothing happens. And 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 it is part of um I think is yeah, the the this is probably the um the part which I thought was a little bit weak. Um and you know, Xavier comes and save the day again is kind of the um silver age thing that happens, right? Because it's always the fact that Oh, oh, the ex, the original five couldn't defeat the Brotherhood of Mutants. But, huh, Savior just roll in in his wheelchair and it's like everyone just got frozen in place. And, oh, end of story. So in the first place, why did he send the original five? And so, it also kind of like reaffirms his whole, like, they're making mistakes without me. Scott yeah. needs me. Cause yeah. he comes in and fixes it all, supposedly. Correct. And this is, this is him flying off after speaking to to Moira. It's like, oh yeah, cosmic. Right. Uh, and and he probably he probably whammy warrant to fly him over in his plane. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I did, I forgot about that. He definitely did that. But think of it, imagine like how awesome it would have been if they were actually all planned it. Like yeah. this was all like everyone planned it and all yeah. of it. But the thing is, it just didn't happen. And this is when this is why we need that. 12 issue tie with 100 tie-ins <laughs> like you know come on we need to know where everyone came from now we're like oh, no no that's it, it. They, they did show it but and and this is the one time that it wasn't show and tell because you in one panel you see you see a shuttle like flying at the in the background of phoenix <sighs> yeah so they did oh, they did yeah. they did show it they did show it, yeah. There it is. Yeah, but it yeah. just happened so suddenly. Like, it just I happens, and then... Yeah, I was genuinely like, oh. shocked. Yeah. Speaking of shocks, though, shocked. the issue ends with a shock, which is that everybody mm. disappears. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what over. happened? Like, we think that it's over, but it's not yeah. over. The but, fate of the phoenix. But yeah. we but we have one more episode to get to for the fate of the phoenix. We do have, mm-hmm. however, two classic X-Men stories to read here, which have nothing to do with this. But they right. happen to be part of um, probably what's happening to the side of the story right now. Mm-hmm. They're two Dazzler stories. By the way, I might have misspoken earlier. We do have one more classic X-Men story to read we next do. episode, which is classic X-Men 43. So, th- mm-hmm. so these are our last two before that. So uh, I... I have never read, I've paged through these two issues because I do have a Dazzler guide on my site. So I've read, I've paged through all of her appearances. I don't know that I've sat and read all of the text of their conversation in 37. Mm-hmm. D- 37, it has a scene that really appeals to me and feels like ripped from my life, which is Dazzler playing in all these different cover bands. She has all these different shows and rehearsals and one she's doing Aerosmith songs and one she's doing mm-hmm. other stuff. We, we come yeah. in mid scene of her singing, uh, Ring My Bell by Anita Ward, I think yeah. is the original artist. And, yeah. uh, and she skates off afterwards because it turns out that she has a late night meeting with all of her yeah. bohemian friends. Some of them are musicians, some of them are poets or whatever, but they all, some of them come from well-to-do families like Allison mm-hmm. does, some of them don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they take over this diner during the night shift where the waitress and the, the cook barely even speak to them. And they just have all of their debates, all of their phys- philosophical moments of connection and uh, gets into some real philosophical questions of what it means to be a mutant and if she has responsibilities mm-hmm. by being a mutant. 
Freya, what did you think of this humanizing, mutinizing moment for <laughs> Dazzler? It there was a lot of philosophical things, uh, like our conversations going on. I I will be honest, I don't think I paid attention to a lot of those, <laughs> but I think it's like the the key takeaway was though is like what's your responsibility, especially you know if you are um, like you know if you are someone who is out there in the in the public spotlight and you kind of have a different identity that you know that what yeah. should you be doing and. Yesterday, I also happened to read the first time Northstar came out um, off of Flight 106, I believe. Um, and then that was also like, you know, um, like a lot of discussion about this father who lost her, his son to AIDS. And he was like, my son didn't get a funeral or like any spotlight because he's gay. So obviously, and then and then Northstar was like, oh, I'm gay. You can just tell me that. And he's like, oh, okay, you are. And you are not doing anything to kind of, you know, do that. So I think... And then mutant being the allegory of bad, but then then it's just kind of gets spotted over there too. But then I also kind of like the idea that Ellison was saying that, you know, this, like being a hero, being a mutant is not what she's interested. She just wants to live. And sometimes that's okay too. You know, just because you are in a public space and space or you are like, you know, different, you know, doesn't mean you have to fight the fight or you have to right. live that life. Like, you know, so I think it's, I kind of liked it. And like, you know, especially with the two comparison, I know having not necessarily planned, but, you know, having read those two back to back, I thought that it was very like, you know, very powerful uh, statement. Tyler, what did you think? Um, if I apologize to the viewers, if you see me swaying, because I, my head, my, I was thinking, ring my bell, <laughs> ring my bell. Ring my so, bell. so I was like <laughs> listening to this song. I was like, wow, for you, I was talking. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of in the same spot as for because, um, um, this, this whole, uh, meeting up with friends to talk about, um, you know, philosophical stuff and, and, and political stuff is, is kind of not something that I do. Mm. Um, when, you know, I'm in her age, like, you know, in her early twenties. Um, so, you know, in some ways it, it doesn't resonate with me, but what really resonated with me is that, um, uh, Nisisa basically, you know, wrote a story that the, that, that is what Alison is. So Alison has never wanted to be a superhero no this is not her jam she's like no i don't want to be a superhero i do not want to be an x-man it's the same with havoc so she's like you know i just want to live my life i just happen to have powers that's all it is you know this is this is me and and i thought this is um pretty um very well in the sense that very well defined here and also um i kind of miss rick leonardi's art so um so this is like you know um something that uh when i revisit it i kind of like it too so you know for me the first thing it makes me really think of is um it makes me think of the end of act one of rent of course rent came years after the Mm -hmm. story was written even 
you know, as a backup in classic X-Men, but this idea of all of this creatives coming back from their gigs at the end of the night and kind of all descending on a diner with this like great nervous creative energy that they're in the world and they have the power to change the world. Um, that's something, you know, as you get older, you sit around and debate philosophical stuff too, but not with the same kind of energy that these kids because they're mostly young have mm-hmm. in this diner and it makes me just think of that um scene when the waiter comes in and he says all of those orders and they all go wine and beer so that that was the one thing on my mind yeah. if any rent fans out there but the other thing is i i mean it absolutely resonates for me this reminds me of that coming down after a gig i remember when i was doing my cover gigs with my band um right before we left the states and they'd be like four or five hour gigs uh, which is crazy to think about, like being on stage and just sustain. I can barely sit on the stool and do a podcast recording for four hours now, but I was on stage, like jumping up and down, playing guitar, singing. And afterwards, I sometimes wouldn't be able to go to sleep until four, five, six in the morning because I would just have mm. so much adrenaline and so much sweat and so much everything that I like couldn't come down. So that, so it really resonated with me from that perspective. And it also just made me think about like, um, you think there's easier answers. Not just at that stage of your life, it has to do with your life experience. And I think you see that range of these characters around the table. Some of them have easier answers than others. A lot of times in this back and forth and we, and it purposely cuts across their conversation. So you don't really ever get yeah. one full conversation from them. Mm-hmm. It's hard to keep track of what they're saying. That's not mm. the point of it. The point right. of it is just seeing these people who are together, who share this energy and where the conversation drifts. But even inside of that, you get the sense that there's some of them that are a little bit more of a realist, some of them that are a little bit more of a pessimist. Not all of them thinks everything is solid and everything is fixable. But it definitely reminds me kind of of the ease of the answers to these systemic problems that comes to you when you're earlier in your life experience, no matter what age you are, right? Where you're like, well, can't this just be XYZ? Or why don't people just that? Like, it's it's never as simple. But if he seems so simple, because you're not burdened with all of the horrible knowledge that you have later in your life experience, too. So I think it's a really special kind of story. I agree with Tyler that it says everything there is to say about, about Dazzler. And I also just think that it's like just a good comic. It re- maybe because it so comes from my life and it kind of goes to show not all things mm-hmm. are universal to everybody. Tyler on this side of the video is like, I've never done that. Me on this side is like, this reminds <laughs> me of every weekend I gigged with my band. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it just really struck a chord for me. Maybe because it's nostalgic and I don't have the band here in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. The couple of things I want to mention though, like you, uh, Tyler mentioned that, um, the D- Dazzler also, like, you know, I don't want to be a superhero. Like, Havoc, but Dazzler does it with so much class, like, you know, versus <laughs> Havoc just comes off like whiny. So it's like he can learn from this. Um, and then the second thing is that um, she uses the term muty, like, you know, to describe herself. Like, you know, I think some, I don't know, something about that was felt very visceral because I know a couple of uh, LGBTQ who uses the F word to kind of describe mm-hmm. themselves and stuff mm-hmm. like so there's like an internal internalized um not not necessarily the hate but the internalized like you know uh, confusion about that that they yeah. have like and it just felt so real like you know you, you don't it, it just it, she just kind of throw it out there and it just felt so i kind of really liked that aspect of it that it's just a very real conversation well, and that exists in a spectrum, right? There's a spectrum yeah. from from using the word because other people are using the word all the way through reclamation of the word. And it's mm-hmm. interesting to think of where Allison is and her journey as a mutant at this point that like, I don't think she's fully to the point of reclamation of the word muty. Mm-hmm. She's yeah. using it in a much more pejorative sense to describe yeah. herself the way other people are describing her I, is what I get from that. Uh, right. 
What about you?、Mm-hmm. No, I mean I agree.、Um, this this is something which、um, uh, I mean in this instance I actually did not spot it. So、um, yeah, I mean so basically、um, I I agree with、um, the take that she is not trying to reclaim it. Yeah,、mm-hmm. and I, and for me I really feel uncomfortable with、um, using terms like that. Like if, I mean I don't I don't see it and I don't understand the reclamation part for me.、Mm-hmm. So for me. A word that is um uh d- 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 derogatory, yeah, derogatory,、mm-hmm. will always be derogatory. There's no there's no no such things as reclamation. You、right. don't feel that the word queer has been reclaimed to a degree in our lifetimes. Um, maybe because I have never thought of queer as being dere- um derogatory. Hmm. Ding ding ding. To begin with, right. So yeah, for me the f um you know the word. Is、yeah. derogatory, and I would never approve the use of it、um, in any instances. Don't tell me you're reclaiming it because that's BS. Right. That's interesting. That's a really interesting perspective. As、mm-hmm. as somebody who's had the word queer graffitied on my home before,、oh. uh, I have some opinions about that. But that、no. will be perhaps a story for another episode or a、but、completely no, but, different non X Men conversation. But the thing is, I think it's because of the lang-、uh, our language and our growing growing up. Like、mm. you know, because the thing is, like when I was growing, I thought that this was the term to use.、Mm. So right, that's、yeah. also kind of the drift. I mean, there's plenty of terms used for plenty of minority people that、yeah. would have been perfectly acceptable in the '70s that are not now. And it's like I have to do a lot of explaining when I read these kids, these comics to the kid, where where the difference between like dated language and the difference between like okay, that is a straight up slur that、yeah. is being used, and because you don't want her to come away thinking that she can. Say、Use、those、it. things,、yeah. and um, and K- Kitty loves saying all those words. So there's a lot, there's a lot. Yeah.、Uh, so we do have one more story today, which is、uh, classic X Men 38. It's by Anne Nascenti, so you know it's weird, <laughs> and、uh, it's and it's got really really striking artwork too. I, I did、yeah. not make note of who the artist was, but I um Carl Carl Baker. Okay, thank you, Tyler.、Yeah. So Dazzler's in a parking garage with an old style elevator that has an attendant. And she finds the attendant very creepy and threatening,、mm. but she's not sure if she's right or not. She's trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, and then he turns out to be really creepy and threatening because he handcuffs her to a pole in the parking lot because he's into making movies and he likes to study fear.、Uh, yeah. And she's like, "Well, you are messing with the wrong mutant today, sir," because she breaks herself out and and puts some some fear into his heart. Nesenti plays with some very strange themes about consent in her and assault and and personhood in her stories. I mean, she just puts it all out there. This was like a you know experience every woman can like connect to. Yeah, like every woman like that that whole like being in the elevator like、mm, oh, and the person like looming. Yeah, looming personality. Oh, like creeping closer to yeah, you. Yeah, creeping like, you, closer. Is then, he or is he not? Yeah, exactly. Kind of the end of the fact that、I'm, we we can't connect to being handcuffed because I、yeah. mean you shouldn't.、Uh, I mean you know that's like that's but th- that whole thing is like okay, am I being um am I being uh like you know horrible by thinking these things?、Right. But then the thought is there. It was like picture perfect. Like it's shot for shot. Like I, like you know, I do not. I I'll tell you, I do not get into the elevator with another man.、Mm-hmm. Like I don't. Like you know, I don't. And then you know, so 
it connected from a lot of that point of view. And then, you know, the whole BS is like, oh, no, I'm just doing something. Yeah. Did you think about how the other person is going to feel yeah. about this? Right. So, you know, but, you know, she got her comeuppance. So, like, you know, she mm-hmm. at least got her revenge. So yeah. that, was, that was pretty cool. Didn't realize that it was Allison until she's like, you know, it, it doesn't look it like, you know, without mm-hmm. her makeup and everything. So. Yeah. So that was a little, like, you know, like, odd for me. But otherwise, the story itself is like, we should bring Nocente back. Let's no, bring no. her back and tell her some ex-lady stories. <laughs> and also, I think in terms of like, I mean, just to build on what Peter said, um, the body language drawn in this by, by, by Baker is really striking. Like, you can tell, like, Alison is kind of like, oh, okay, this is creepy. Mm-hmm. And she's like trying to make herself smaller and yeah. like further and he away. he just almost seems like he's getting bigger and bigger yeah. behind right. her. Yeah. It's a really great um, marriage of the intent of the script and the execution of the script. Mm-hmm. I think that this could have come off way less creepy, foreboding, whatever, if somebody hadn't like done as much visual play. It almost seems closer to like Sinkovich's style where it's very non-literal and like he's playing with how big the shapes are based on the emotion in the moment rather than being like, there is a man standing behind Allison. It's not yeah. quite as literal as that. Right. No. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's one of those creepy stories and then and you get like, you get that, that weird feeling after you read, after, mm. after, you know, while you're reading it. It's like, mm. yeah. yeah. Much better than the other one when they went to the Halloween, Halloween party. party. <laughs> <laughs> what was that about? I don't get that Some, at all. Yeah. I mean, it may, I, so I've never read Anasenti's Daredevil and it hadn't been collected for a long time, but mm-hmm. now a lot of it's an epic collection. Yeah. And people talk about it in such striking, like hot or cold. Some people think it's like the best Daredevil ever, even better than mm-hmm. Miller. Some people are like, why would you reread that? It's horrible. Like, I can't believe we survived it the first time. And still not having read it, though, it's on my list to get to. Now I'm starting to understand why there was that big of a divide. Nascenti mm-hmm. clearly is the kind of writer who like divides a room of people. Yeah. Oh, and then you should you should actually like if you can Google her, if you like, yeah, this this person wrote that. It's it's <laughs> perfect. Like I'm not, it, and she she looks like badass. But the thing is, yeah, like, it, there there is a certain like you're like, yeah, I can see, I can see, you know, you know. <laughs> well, I met her. I met her at the con. You so. did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Without too. having read uh, all the stuff, now would you would you get a classic X Men issue for her to sign or something? Now? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So the thing is, like, what happened? Um, so if we if we were gonna, uh, so I actually wanted to talk to um, not Shelley Bond, uh, who's the, um, the Burger the, Karen Burger, but Karen Burger. So I wanted to take a picture with Karen Burger, uh, like you know, because she was sitting next to her, and I'm like, oh, is it okay if I take a picture? And then she just she's like, yeah, she's making you look feel old, isn't she? <laughs> I wasn't sure what to think about that. <laughs> so yeah, so that was my, you know, it's like here, give me the phone. You think I'm old and I can't take picture? And I'm like, no, I didn't say that. Charlie, do you want to be in the picture too? She's like, no, you didn't ask me. So, <laughs> and now Freya understands so much more about it. So, <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm like, yeah, this, is, mm. like, you know, she's 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 the kind of person who writes. So the first the first time I met her was the first was at my very first con, uh, oh. and it, it didn't happen that that long ago. It was at the end of um 2015, and I met. 
all three of them, Louis Simonson, Chris Claremont, and Anne Losenti. Oh. And they had a panel. And they were talking about X-Men. It was heaven for me. <laughs> because I'm like geeking out. I was like, holy shit. You know, yeah. like we're talking about so many. They, they talk about so many things. And they drop so many tidbits and things that happens. And the whole thing with um Shooter. The whole thing with the Phoenix Rebirth. They talk about that. No filters. So they were like, the three of them were just like basically talking over each other and, and adding and, and things like that. It was so fun. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, Louis Samuelson is also someone who put a person in an egg forever. Like, <laughs> so do not mess with her either. Like, well, you know, when I, I saw that, she, when I saw that she wrote, Na- she created Nanny, I'm like, yeah. Well, and it really yeah. gives you perspective. Like, here's who Claremont was working with as editors. You know, Free and I, get into a lot about like can this really be all classic um and still worth recommending given how badly it treats some issues today like can you say now this is a story that's 40 years old that like it still can hold up and like part of why even though there's so many problems to be found in these claremont issues it's like he was collaborating with people like anna senti and louise simonson behind the scenes it was completely different than almost any other comic coming out at the time and yet at the same time you know you have gene has power so that must be orgasmic or like let's say that storm was a, you know like a slave or let's have them have their you know sexual agency threatened yet again but at the same time like at least it was at least it had something to say compared to s- superhero comics where the woman was just there to be the smurfette you know so you gotta you kind of gotta like weigh how much weight you want to give this classic material i don't know free is there anything you would add to that i, I think it's also because of like these women were also trying to get their like you know keep not keep their job but they're doing their job and this is the best way they thought they could they're like okay there's a certain expectation there's a certain stereotype we have to stick to it and this is just a superhero comic that we need to put out there like a lot of the time it's like unless you have like i'm pretty sure both of them now go if you ask them they will be like okay there will be a lot of things we will change right you know just the same way claremont is a product of, of his time so are these ladies so you know, I I mean, yeah, we talk about it and I'm like, oh, seriously. But the thing at the same time, like, yeah, this is the best they could do. Right. This was the no, best but- of. And, and to be clear, um, Simonson's not editing it at this point. It's yeah. Jim Salaprop. Right, right. They were not. But I'm just yeah. saying generalizing about the Claremont right. run. Yeah. Right, right. Like, you know, upcoming. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, and that's, that, that's, to be honest, like when you said that the, when it actually becomes good, are the time they are the editors. Yes. So... Maybe, you know, they really did come and say like, yeah, let's let's not have they rain, give- they rein him in a little bit. Yeah, really. let's not let's not give women orgasm all the time. I mean that <laughs> no, but, I mean less, but you know but what not I mean. On, yeah. 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 To be fair uh, to be fair, that is one of the more Claremontian thing that he does now and then. Yeah. There is mm. there is this Claremontian thing that that Claremont does. There is this burn thing that Burn does and is not very um Modern, by, yeah. Uh, by, Cla- by on a woman using her power pretty much turns out like a like. Remember those herbal essences commercials? <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys have had some time talking about orgasms, but I've been giving it some thought, and I know what we should read next. Mm. Harry, you're still not on this show. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm here now, and I've been giving it a lot of thought, and uh, I think that we should read some Batman. Oh. Oh. 
Well, what we which Batman are we doing? Nipper suit Batman, Josh Clooney type of Batman, or? <laughs> well, we could have like a steamy, unrated video on our Patreon for the nipple suit Batman, but I've got something a little bit more cerebral in mind. So uh, I think so just like stay Tim tuned. Burton and cerebral, we have, like what direct you have any hints? Oh, I, I'm not mopey enough for that. That's beautiful. But I like something a little bit more uh, esoteric and trippy and a little bit pretentious. But oh, I, I don't think like this gonna, at all. <laughs> it's going to come together in a really nice way. Frida's going like to beat it. me up. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And I guess Harry's going to come back next week and tell us what Batman we're going to be reading. Yes, right. Mm. Okay. So stay yeah. tuned. Okay. <laughs> That has been our penultimate discussion of our first season of reading through classic X-Men. We have one more episode. It's the big one. It's yeah. Uncanny X-Men 137. Also, the story in classic X-Men 43. Also, we are going to read Phoenix the Untold Story, which has the pre-Jim Shooter influence version of the Phoenix story that Claremont and Byrne were originally going to tell. We also might read some other bits and bobs, odds and ends. We also might give you a little bit of a summation of the journey that we've been through on this reading project these past several months now, but you'll have to tune in next time to find out. So on the behalf of myself, Afria and Tyler, thank you so much for being a part of our epic X-Men reread. We hope we're going to see you for one more episode presented by Crushing Comics. Until then, I hope you're well. X-Men is better when it's read together. That's right. 